Welcome to Baseball Talk, ladies and gentlemen. Second week of September, Bianca Andreescu has just won the U.S. Open. Things are looking great. And we have a great interview coming up for you in just a minute. But first, I'm Andy Clark. Co-hosting tonight is Rob Whiteman. Working behind the scenes there is Adam Olivero. And later on in the show, we're going to do some uh, miscellaneous seasonal spotlights on some players we like to follow. Uh, we have a Twitter poll. We have uh, some chat about Rod Carew. We're going to talk about hustle in the game of baseball. And we've got a really amazing clip to show you with that one. And before we get into all of that, we have someone on the phone all the way from Vancouver, British Columbia, Director of Communications and Play-by-Play -play Guy for the Vancouver Canadians, who are the Toronto Blue Jays' single-A affiliate. So we're going to get a chance to talk about some of the prospects that have gone through there and some of the ones that are currently going through there. So Blue Jays fans may have noticed that this uh, summer they aired about six games from the Vancouver Canadians. Uh, so it was kind of cool seeing some of the prospects on the way. And on the line here, we have all the way from Vancouver, Rob Fay, who is their director of communications and uh, does a lot of the broadcasting for them. Welcome to the show, Rob. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate you doing this for us. Nice. Yeah, we have a lot of listeners that are hardcore Blue Jay fans. So this will be a chance for them to uh, get a bit of a preview on some of the players there. Well, we were very fortunate. We had a couple of blue chippers in addition to a couple of sleepers. So between the two, it made for a really fun season. Let's start with, uh, tell us about who the blue chippers, uh, I'm guessing along there would be uh, Alec Manoa might be on that list. Oh, I would imagine so. Yeah, six foot seven, 310 pounds. Uh, really, in my estimation, one of the can't-miss prospects. And I think if he can control his weight, maybe use this offseason to tighten a few things up, uh, he's a guy that just, you know, has so many things that you're intrigued by. Uh, he's got a longer wingspan than Randy Johnson. Um, he's a guy that throws with ease and uh, just a really stubborn competitor as well, which for my money is something that you can't teach. That's got to be inherited. In. And uh, for me, just watching him attack hitters is something that I think he'll do up through the entire system. So for next year, do you anticipate uh, he'll be double-A New Hampshire or is he going all the way to Buffalo? No, I would imagine, you know, as much as the Blue Jays want to push him forward, I'd probably put him on the same trajectory as Nate Pearson. So it wouldn't surprise me if he's getting Lansing and started in Dunedin. Um, but I think they'd give him a pretty good look at Dunedin. And if everything went completely well, maybe a case to New Hampshire by September. But I, I would imagine he's still two years away at least. They seem to be uh, not rushing things now compared to uh... – maybe in the past, and uh, maybe it's a good thing to keep him down and, and let him go through the system and, and grow. Yeah, well, for sure, because, I mean, at the end of the day, he's still got to learn how to pitch at the professional level. Um, there's a lot of things that he does right, but there's a lot of things that he does college right. And there's a different way of living when you become a professional athlete, the way that you maintain your arm, uh, the way that the Blue Jays will control him. If you watch Nate Pearson, for example, there were outings where he would go five innings, followed by outings where he would go two. And even though he could probably give you more innings, they were really big on making sure that his workload management was uh, first and foremost. So I could definitely see them putting him on the exact same train uh, that they had Nate Pearson a year ago. And uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Adam Kloffenstein. There's not much more I can say. Uh, exceeded every expectation I could have had. Uh, when we got him, I was actually really surprised because, you know, remembering thinking back to the 2018 draft, I almost lost track of Adam Kloffenstein. So when I saw my opening day roster and that he was on it, I was smitten because I knew that I was going to be one of the first to get a true look at him, and he was awesome. He has five pitches, far mature for his age, and more than anything, uh, was the team MVP. Every day that he pitched, you knew you had a chance to win, which... Uh, you don't usually hear from an 18-year-old, but um, just outstanding stuff. Yeah, it's easy to forget that he's 18. Well, yeah, and, and the other thing, well, he just turned 19, but for the entire season, for the better part of it, he was 18. And it was interesting. He did an interview with John Locke from The Athletic in Toronto that really opened my eyes because everybody had mentioned that, you know, he had gotten this $3.5 million and uh, bought himself a car, bought himself some gold chains, you know, some Gucci, some Louis Vuitton. And you thought to yourself, okay, well, what kind of kid am I getting? He said one line in the interview with John Lunch. He said, you know, I got to Vancouver and realized I'm not as good as I thought I was. And I thought for a kid to be able to identify that at that age 
and be able to make the adjustments on the fly, um, that shows a lot of maturity. And, and maybe there's some of us that undersold him from the mental side of the game. So I'm thrilled. I think he'll start at Lansing next year, uh, but I can't imagine he'll be in the whole season if he did anything like what he did here in Vancouver. Um, as far as other sleepers, who would you have in that category? Yeah, there's a player named Luis Quinones who was taken in the last round of this year's draft, and Quinones was really in the shadow of Manila and Klopfenstein, but was named our Pitcher of the Year. He had an ERA coming into the final game of the season right around one, and he was an eight-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio pitcher. Um, had really good stuff in the low to mid nineties as well, and you just didn't you didn't even think that this was going to be a guy that was going to be able to carry it through the whole season. Yeah, he had one outing, he had two outings at the beginning of the season that were good. But then all of a sudden you looked up and it was his 10th outing, his 11th outing, and he still had the best numbers on the team, better than Manoa, better than Crawford's and made you realize that, boy, this is a kid that nobody saw coming that I think the Blue Jays should be really high on. Now, uh, it's no secret that the Blue Jays, uh, the parent club, their biggest need is some uh, pitching. Who do you uh, suspect from this 2019 crop that you saw in Vancouver? Who do you think is going to get to the big leagues first? Well, if, if age is a determining factor, I would probably say Alec Manoa, just because he does have the potential of that major league stuff. And he's also got the frame of a major leaguer at six foot seven. Um, but if you were just to go on hope and imagination, Adam Clausenstein could be in that conversation. But I just think, you know, with Klopp being 19, there's still so much that he's got to learn just about life. Uh, whereas Alec Manoa is much more polished, um, a guy that obviously went through university, so he's got that pedigree as well. So it would be no surprise if Alec was the first guy through. It's actually uh, kind of refreshing to hear some of this because all we've heard all season is how much of a, the, the depth is an issue for, for the Jays when it comes to pitching. Uh, it's good to hear that there is something in the, in the system that's coming up. Well, you know, it's interesting because Jeff Ware, who's the pitching coordinator for the minor league, you know, he comes through at least twice a season to Vancouver, and we've had a good rapport because he used to be the pitching coach in Vancouver. And I said, is it a, and it's funny you say that because I said to him at one point in the season, I said, is it as bleak as everybody says? And he says, well, it depends on what you're looking at. He says, if you look analytically, he says, yeah, they probably still need one more draft, even on the heels of 2019, to truly bear some fruit. But he says, if you're just looking at gamers, and then he mentioned that the Blue Jays right now have a pipe, and it's kind of like blonde, redhead, brunette. The Blue Jays right now have tall, heavy set pitchers that can throw really hard. And some, you know, if you remember back in 2015, 2016, uh, the Blue Jays went off the grid. They were getting guys in the fourth and the fifth round that you thought, boy, what are we doing here? Why not? Like, why would you pass on these guys and take, you know, somebody like J.C. Cardenas, the shortstop who's not even with the organization anymore? I can't get enough of what they've done over the last three years because you think of Nate Pearson, T.J. Zoig, Alec Manoa, Adam Klopfenstein, the lowest guy on the totem pole is six foot five. So for me right now, I look at these big bodies, these big husky bodies that are going to be able to give you 180 to 200 innings, and uh, that excites me. So if they can keep them healthy, uh, I think the Blue Jays have far more than maybe even the best with the analytic have in front of them. And we're getting to see T.J. Zoig now. Yeah, up and he's made the team and and uh, is starting for us. Yeah, well, we were very lucky in in 2011 and 2012. You had Sanchez at one point, you had Syndergaard, and you had Asuna and Stroman, and then all of a sudden they had to go and fill some other holes, and that's the cycle of baseball. So now that you see that the Blue Jays over the last three years have gone really pitcher heavy, it wouldn't surprise me if in the next draft or two drafts they start looking at outfielders or. Uh, you know, left-handed hitting first baseman, people that they can recycle because, you know, it, it's really tough. When I look at the Blue Jays, and I was talking with Jesse Barfield about this a couple of weeks ago, I said, you know, the infield looks set for the next couple of years if they keep everything intact. The catchy, they've actually got an embarrassment of riches when it comes to their minor league system. And they've also got some starting pitching that if they can go out and maybe get themselves a free agent at the one or two position, you know, an ace or a number two, they're going to be just fine. But outfielding is something that I really think right now is a question mark. I mean, even at the major league level, I mean, are you really going to build your team around Randall Gritchick? Uh, is Anthony Alford ever going to pan out? Is hey, Oscar Hernandez everything you wanted? What is Florida Scoriel Jr.? I mean, there are so many questions when you come to the outfield. 
that it wouldn't surprise me if in the first or second round of this year's draft, the 2020 draft, if they aren't looking at somebody that fills one of those voids because they're done on Dalton Ponte. Nobody's looking at Roman Fields. I don't think that they've got any appetite right now for Anthony Alford more than a fourth or a fifth outfielder. So uh, if you don't have a bona fide prospect in your system, at least a double A that you could pull up in a, in a you know, right now situation, then that's definitely something you want to fill within the first three rounds of a draft. So speaking of that then, uh, with the Canadians, who would you say is the most promising looking from their outfielders? Oh, boy. Uh, this year, I didn't have one. And I say that lovingly because they're all great guys. I would look to Lansing. I would say that Chavez Young, who spent time, of course, in Lansing and Dunedin over the last couple of years, is a, uh, an outside shot guy. Reggie Pruitt's an outside shot guy. I really, and I hate to say this because I love a lot of these guys, I don't have an outfielder on my radar, which is why I think the Blue Jays need to address it pretty quickly. Bring some people in. Now, I'm one of those old-fashioned guys where I feel that true championship caliber teams need to have an element of speed that they can draw on. And, uh, you know, there's been kind of a deficit of that. It hasn't been a priority for the organization. Uh, do you have anybody with Vancouver that's uh, pretty good on the base paths? Uh, they can actually get on base, not in 2019. Uh, we had a lot of guys get burned, but they couldn't find out. Dominic Abadesta, uh, you know, you, you look at Dominic and he hit the ball really hard. We had a couple of guys at the bottom of the order that could flat out run. Um, Tanner Morris was drafted this year in at least the fifth round out of Virginia. Uh, kind of a clunky looking infielder. He's got a decent enough bat hit around 250-260 this year, uh, but it's really disorganized. And I think there's a lot of work that the Blue Jays are going to have to put into him to get him to look uh, smooth and maybe like a guy that can progress, progress through the system. Speed, I, the last guy that I can say has legit speed, um, a silver medalist would be somebody like Chavez Young and Reggie Pruitt. The, the guy that I'm actually surprised never made his way through, and I guess it's just because he didn't put the ball in play enough, was Roman Fields, the guy that we had uh, back in 2014, which, you know, isn't that long removed from where we are right now, um, lit this league on fire with his legs and had done so at almost every level all the way through minor league baseball. Um, but when you're hitting 225, 230, it's just not enough to get a look over you know, guys that maybe have a bigger frame. So um, from speed perspective, I didn't have a burner this year, and that's unfortunate because I love speed as well. Yeah, because well, you were mentioning Dominic Abadessa there, because he only he only had what uh what twelve steal attempts too, so it's hard to even really get established when when I think he led your team with uh he he, he stole ten and twelve attempts, right? Like if that's leading your team with twelve attempts, it shows you the organization really is not making it a priority. Well, you know, I, I will agree and disagree with you. I'll agree with you in the fact that I think the organization hasn't made it a priority for the last couple of years, but we had a terrible hitting team this year. We had six guys in and around 200. We had four guys that were batting well under 200, and the two fastest hitters on the team were hitting well below 200. So you've got to get on base to be able to make things happen. Even Cameron Eden, who was taken this year, I believe, in the sixth round out of Cal Berkeley, he didn't get on base a lot. So any speed element that we had for Casey Kandel was sitting on the bench over three. And unfortunately, you can't play that style of baseball if your guys can't get on base. So, I mean, six of one, half a dozen of the other. But, yeah, the Canadians were definitely hampered by their inability to hit this year. Now, uh, stepping back, uh, you've been broadcasting with the team for quite a few years. Uh, yeah. Now you're with the organization, and then you left for a while to do uh, some radio and some other stuff, and then you returned. Uh, in your tenure as a broadcaster with them, who would you say has been the most dynamite prospect to go through? Ooh, great question. I mean, pitching, I hate to say it, but of everybody that I ever saw, I would have said, well, there's a couple of guys here. I love Noah Syndergaard. When he got traded for, uh, when he got traded for R.A. Dickey, I thought I was going to have a seizure. I could not believe <laughs> that he was a piece who was added to the Mets deal you know, several years ago. And me and Jerry Howarth have had this conversation a couple of times because Jerry saw the benefit of R.A. Dickey at the major league level, that he helped the, the Blue Jays get 200 innings. And I said, that's cool for a year or two, but Noah Syndergaard is going to be that guy for eight to 10 years. And it was, you know, you sit there and you look back through all of the years that we've had prospects within the Blue Jays organization. Uh, I would say right there, Noah Syndergaard is still my horse. Nate Pearson right behind him on the mound. When I think positionally, it's another guy that left the organization. One of my favorite players of all time just made his major league debut with Kansas City in Ryan McBroom. 
McBroom, of course, left the organization, ended up with New York, got traded to Kansas City, and debuted. Now, I look over at first base, and I see Justin Smoke, who's starting to get a little bit older. Rowdy Telez may or may not pan out. And I see a guy like Ryan McBroom, and I how did the Blue Jays let go of that guy? I think McBroom's good for at least five to seven seasons. And the Blue Jays right now, the best prospect that I've ever seen come through this organization, all wear different jerseys today. It's, actually, it's funny. I was just uh, I happened to look look up Ryan McBroom the other day on on the internet. I had to Google him just to see how he was doing, and uh, yeah, kind of frustrating to uh, to see that he's doing so well. Much like uh, Syndergaard, you know, and, and you think what could have been. Well, I mean, you make that deal. I understand why the Blue Jays make that deal. You've got the National League Cy Young Award winner, and he's the guy that can get you two on the I get that. But a lot of people thought that that trade was essentially, you know, uh, R.A. Dickey for Travis Darnot and some kid from Texas that had never played above high A. Mm-hmm. And having seen Noah Syndergaard at that point, it's not rare that you'd want to trade a six foot six guy that's 210 pounds and throws the ball 100 miles an hour. But, I mean, you know, sometimes you don't get that data up to the big guys in, in time. And I think that the Mets made away like bandits in that trade, even though the Blue Jays got a major league front-end guy. Um, the Mets in the long term, I actually think win that deal. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you were joined in the booth uh, this, this season by Ricky Romero. Yes. Uh, tell us what it was like to work with Ricky. Uh, Ricky broke every stigma that I had about him, every preconceived notion, because I thought, here's the guy that pulled the hat down right to his eyes, the East L.A. tough guy. Um, everybody told me he's one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet, but until you physically stand beside him and have conversations with him, um, he's such a fountain of information. And a little timid in our first broadcast or two, there's no doubt about it. It took him a game or two to kind of loosen up, but just watching him break down a pitcher's mechanics or understanding the situation of a baseball game from a player's perspective, um, you know, I always sit back and say, man, all these jobs in broadcasting are getting gobbled up by former players. But on the flip side of that, if you're a guy at home or a girl at home, and you have a guy that's physically been on the field that can break that game down in a way that maybe you haven't seen it, it's really hard to disagree with that. So even in just the half dozen games that I did with Ricky this year, just seeing the game through his eyes, in addition to realizing what a cool dude he is, uh, was really a win-win for me. Yeah, it was. Uh, I enjoyed watching the games when uh, Sportsnet was uh, broadcasting them. I thought he did a great job, and uh, it's always kind of broke my heart how his career ended, how everything just kind of tailed off and and dropped. And uh, it's great to see him kind of uh, coming back in a in a new form and kind of staying in the game. Yeah, and you know what, the Blue Jays, the one thing that they do really well, and I don't even know if they get enough credit for it, is they do a fantastic job with their alumni. Um, Maria Crestwell back in Toronto at Rogers Center, tremendous job organizing things and making sure that these guys still feel valued and still feel like they're a part of the organization. And, you know, it's not just Joe Gaston and Roberto Alomar, two of the more notable names when it comes to the alumni. It's the secondary guys, you know. For example, the, you know, I mean, Ricky Romero, perfect example. J.P. Garantia, another example. Guys that came through the mid-2000s, you know, that 03, 04, 05 that maybe people don't associate with success. Well, they're still a part of the bridge that got us to where we are. So even though we look back at 92 and 93, and then we look back at the playoff years, a couple of years from just where we're having this conversation, that early 2000 crew had a lot of great names and a lot of valuable players. And I'm so glad to see that the Blue Jays haven't forgotten that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I know uh, in recent years you've also uh, you've called some preseason games from down in the uh, Sunshine area. So is that much different than doing the single-A uh, regular season, or is there much of an adjustment to do those broadcasts? It is probably the hardest baseball game to broadcast anywhere outside of maybe the All-Star game. And the reason being is that you have wholesale changes um, with guys who don't usually have names on the back of their jerseys, guys that found out they were playing in the game 20 minutes before the bus left, some guys aren't on the roster, some guys actually take their jerseys off and give it to the other guy because the guy didn't bring his jersey. It is organized chaos when it comes to spring training. And I was really fortunate that the Fan 590 gave me an opportunity 
first to audition for Jerry's job back in 2017, but then even just to come back a season later, and or pardon me, in 2018, and then to come back a season later and do it along with all of the Blue Jay minor league broadcasters. And that was actually an idea that was formulated by Ben Wagner, who, of course, before he got the major league job with the Blue Jays, was with Buffalo for 14 seasons. And he said in spring training, when we were both working together trying to get that job, he said, you know what the Blue Jays should do? is they should have everybody in the system do a couple of spring training games. So wouldn't you know it, the very next spring, Jesse Goldberg, Strassler, Jim Terabokia, all of us, we all got called to come down and do some games. And even though it's just one or two games, it is invaluable just to get that experience and also just live the dream. I mean, just even though they're, as Mike Wilner calls them, fake games, they're not fake to me. They're real. They're the biggest states that I've been on, and, and I was thrilled to do each and every one of them. Yeah, you know, as a fan, I will listen, or if they are broadcast, which is kind of rare, but uh, I kind of enjoyed that uh, that mix of different broadcasters coming into the booth and uh, calling the game. Uh, it's almost like spring training for the announcers as well. Well, yeah, the, the, the hardest part for me is everybody at the end of spring training is ready to go. I've got to go back to Vancouver and wait another two and a half months for my next game. So <laughs> it's kind of weird. <laughs> It's like leaving a party early when you know that the good music is still to come, but you have to go home because you're curfew. Um, and you just sit there and you say to yourself, just get the experience. He's so great. And Fan 590 has been so gracious to all of us broadcasters to even keep us in that conversation. Um, I, I'll tell you what, some of my greatest baseball memories are amidst the chaos of trying to keep up with the scorebook, just being able to sit back and call a Kevin Pillar home run or a Russell Martin home runner. The game that I did with Scott MacArthur last year was the first game that Bryce Harper played with the Philadelphia Phillies, and he hit two home runs. And you sit there and you're like, I'm the first guy to see Bryce Harper hit a home run in a Phillies uniform. So oh, wow. even though they're spring training games, there's always a little piece of your heart attached to those games as well. Um, and uh, using your broadcasting chops, you also have another interesting thing on your resume uh, with EA Sports uh, doing some voice work for their uh, – hockey game so tell us a little bit about that i have uh, actually ea comes out in a couple of days and it will be the 10th year uh that i've done the rink announcing on that hockey game and it's, it's kind of funny because when i first got the job it took me three weeks to go through all of the players names now i only have to go do updates at this point but it's really cool because i have a son and a daughter and my son will bring his friends over to our home um, I'll turn the TV down, I'll sit in my chair beside them while they play, and I'll announce the game for them. And it's street cred with 14-year-olds everywhere. <laughs> but I, I just, it was a really cool thing. We're very fortunate because EA Sports is located in Burnaby, which is a suburb of Vancouver. Um, so I was just the right dude at the right time, and I have been absolutely over the moon to go home, put in my uh, DVD. I know, of course, you can do it online now, but I get the old DVD, slide it in, turn it on, and uh, to hear your voice, a part of one of the biggest games of EA history is, for me, uh, something I'll never forget. So is it fairly grueling? Like you mentioned there, like several weeks just to go through the players' names. Like, how much of a time commitment is it? Well, the first year we had, I think we had 12 leagues, and we're up to 16 leagues. We've got the hut. We've got the legacy teams now. Um, I mean, realistically, the hardest part the first year um, was saying the names properly. Like, it's... It, it, you would think that it's easy to say John Smith, but when you get to the Swedish Elite League and the Russia League and the Quebec League and, uh, you know, the, uh, the Czech League, you sit here and you say to yourself, boy, maybe I've bitten off more than I could choose. So if you picture this, I'm on one side of the glass with a microphone and my headset on, and I've got a guy on the other side of the window, the least upgraded guy in the game, because he says the name and I just repeat the name in my voice. So he does all the heavy lifting. And I just have to make sure that I'm making sure that the accent's in the right place and that I'm not kicking it down the can. Um, and I, I, I just sit back and say to myself, to get through that first three weeks was uh, one of the toughest things I ever did because you've got to say the same name four different ways. You've got to say it with an up inflection. You've got to say it with a down inflection. You've got to say it as if he scored a goal on the road. And you've got to say it as if he scored a goal at home. All four different intonations to it. And so to be able to introduce six, uh, what was it, 12 leagues at the time, 12 leagues of players, um, that, took a, that took a little bit of time. Nice. And uh, 
that's a cool gig. And it seems like uh, I was reading up a bit on, you know, how things are going with the Vancouver Canadians. And uh, pretty much close, uh, averaging close to a sellout every game in the home stadium. Uh, I think your capacity's a bit under 7,000. And uh, so enthusiasm for the fans. And you now are having uh, half a dozen national broadcasts every year, which I agree with Rob. I really enjoyed watching that, you know, up at the lake on a, on a Saturday night, getting to catch the single A kind of made me feel like a scout without having to <laughs> eat the bad chili dogs and drink the bad coffee and drive all over Absolutely. the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So there seems to be a pretty good zeitgeist going with uh, the baseball in Vancouver right now. Yeah, you know, and it hasn't always been that way. Uh, even in AAA days, and, and it's funny because when we first took over this uh, this city, it used to be AAA until 1999, and it became short season in 2000. It really took five to six years for people to make that mental transition, like they weren't getting short change. But you, know, you get local ownership in 2007, um, and one of the greatest things that they did was, and it was funny because I've worked for both regimes. I've worked for the old ownership group, and I've worked for the current one. The old ownership group had this real big inferiority complex, like, we've got to be like the Lions, we've got to be like the Canucks, we've got to, you know, tell them that we, you know, our payroll is bigger than the DC Lions, and you knew that you weren't telling out the truth, and you, you just felt like you were cheapening the brand and cheapening the product. So when the new ownership group came in in 2007, their pencils were a lot sharper, they were honest with fans, and they did little things, like, for example, they created a mascot. Can you believe that the Canadians didn't even have a mascot? And then they add a video board out in center field. And then they create a foundation for the youth so that we're not just opening up the doors here at the ballpark saying come in and pay 20 bucks here. Now we're going back into the community and giving something back. Those are the layers of an organization that take years to build. But more than anything, it builds trust within this franchise. So we went from a team that was at 60% capacity, meaning four out of 10 seats were empty, to not having a ticket available after July the 5th and our season runs until September. So if you didn't have a ticket to this stadium by the 5th of July, you could not get a ticket to Vancouver Canadians baseball. For short season baseball in a major league city, that is one of the greatest stories in Canadian sport history and probably one of the least covered stories in Canadian sport history. Yeah, and that brings to mind, uh, there was an interview during your last national broadcast against uh, Tri-City. I believe it was with the team president. Forgive me if I got yeah. that wrong. but uh, No, you're right. Yeah, and I seem to remember that was part of that conversation where some of the focus was making sure, for instance, that the washrooms were spotless and things like that, so that people, when they came out for like an, an evening out with the family at the ballpark, they didn't have to worry about those little things, that those details were taken care of. And yeah, sometimes you don't have to pay the huge money for the superstar. Sometimes it's just making sure that the little things are really well taken care of. Yeah, you know, it's, he, he simplifies things. I mean, that's part of the reason he's president of the organization. I remember we were having a, an off-season powwow. If you do, you're only planning a season ahead. And uh, I remember early on in his tenure, he said, you know, there's only three things we need to worry about in this meeting. He says, the Blue Jays are going to take care of everything between the lines. We can't control that. He says, if there's a place for you to park, if the food is hot, the beer is cold, and the bathrooms are clean, we will sell out. And we all kind of looked around and, you know, looked down the aisle at the rest of our buddies and were like, there's no way that it's that simple. And it was that simple. Because the most compliments that we get on this stadium, you got to remember, Nat Bailey's nearly 70 years old. It's one of the oldest stadiums in the Pacific Northwest. Um, it's spotless. And it's one of those things that Andy Dunn just mandated. He goes, I don't care if the paint in the outfield fence is starting to curl a little bit. We'll get to that. But when you walk into this ballpark as a fan, there is no dust on your seat. You're not waiting 20 minutes for your hot dog, and you're sure not going into a bathroom and sitting around saying, boy, I don't want to sit on that seat. It sounds weird in its simplicity, but that's the key to bringing fans to your ballpark. Nice. Yeah, just to get that great fan experience. Well, Rob, uh, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks for giving us uh, insights on players that are way on their way up to the, the big leagues and uh, what's going on out there with the Vancouver Canadians. It's been great talking to you. Oh, it's my pleasure, guys. You guys are welcome anytime. And if you're out on the West Coast or the listeners are out here, just hit me up on Twitter. I'd be happy to connect you guys with the ballpark. Sounds awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rob. Take care, guys. Okay. All right, folks. And we're going to be right back with you in a second with one of the most bizarre major league singles you've probably ever seen.
So ladies and gentlemen, uh, just over a week ago in the St. Louis Cardinals game, there was quite an interesting highlight that we're going to queue up for you right now. I know uh, we shared it with Rob just before airtime and literally his jaw dropped because that's one of the great things about baseball is you can watch it for a lifetime and there's still stuff you've never seen that happens. And uh, this particular hit, uh, we'll let you watch it there for our podcast viewers. Uh, I'll describe it for you is Paul DeJong's at the plate, and as it rolls here, he cut, he took a swing at it, and it was up near his, uh, his fists, and there was so much spin on the ball that it shot way out of, it started out way foul, but like a pool shot, it curved back and came back into play, and uh, of course caught everyone by surprise, and thank goodness he had the wherewithal to start running when he saw the spin on the ball, and so we got an easy single out of it. It wasn't even close. So I've never seen a ball go that far out of bounds on the ground come rolling back into play. I know we've seen dribblers go down the line. Sometimes they bunt it or a little bit of a bloop. And sometimes it'll be outside the line and slowly roll in. But this one shot like several feet. Like, I don't know if we see it on the replay again. It was pretty well to the uh, on-deck circle. Like yeah. it just... Uh... It, yeah, it really, uh, really rolled and then uh, came back into play. So this is going to bring up another discussion for us here. Yeah, the pitchers, it's like, what happened there? That ball was so far foul, and then it came back in. And, of course, the bench is loving it, having a good old time. So, uh, yeah, you can, uh, if you're listening to our podcast, I guess you can hit up uh, our friend Google to show you that one. It was Paul DeJong with the Cardinals. Um, so what this brings up, though, because in Major League Baseball, we have a real culture problem, in my opinion. I think a lot of people will agree with me that the whole hustle thing. And baseball used to be a thing, you know, Pete Rose has been demonized, but he was Charlie Hustle. And even if it was a walk, he was hurrying down to first base. And people have pointed out Mike Trout. Mike Trout is the highest paid player in baseball, pretty much. And I think a lot of people would agree there's a very strong case he's the best player in baseball right now, and that guy hustles. Yeah, he could be one of the greatest of all time. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he moves. He, he hustles. He moves and hustles. But there's guys, part of it's because they're making so much money, I guess they feel bulletproof with the coaches and stuff, but, like, as we said, the, the machados of the world, like, sorry, I don't hustle. Yeah, his, his comments last year uh, in the playoffs – it was kind of tough because I was cheering for the Dodgers because I despise the Red Sox so much. Uh, and then to have him say that, it was really tough to even cheer for the Dodgers after that. And it was quite satisfying to uh, watch him linger in free agency for as long as he did afterwards through the offseason and uh, end up in San Diego on top of it. But, uh, yeah, it seems to be... Uh, a, a culture change compared to many years ago. If you made contact with the ball, you started moving. Yeah, and you, uh, you started hustling. And uh, if you didn't hustle, you sat. And I believe it was. Uh, I'm not sure if it was Ronald Acuna Jr. with Atlanta recently. He got he got sat down. Who I mean, one of their best players. He got sat down for the rest of the game uh, for not hustling. So there are coaches that will stand up to this and say, no, you're going to move. I actually enjoyed the fact that Bryce Harper went to Philly where they have the toughest fans in sports. They booed Santa Claus at an Eagles game. We all remember that. Uh, and he said, I'm going to hustle because if not, they're going to get on me. And uh, you do see Harper moving a lot more than what he used to in Washington. Making the efforts, yeah. yeah. Well, we still have that mix, right? We have the Trouts hustling, and then we have a whole lot that, that don't. Like, you know, calling to mind there, I've seen players, infield singles, that look like, we know the math of it, probably, you know, 98, 99% is going to be an out. I've actually seen someone sort of put their hand up and just start heading back to the dugout, like, I'm not running. Um, actually, last week, and unfortunately, I didn't note who it was, I'm Pretty sure it was in the Milwaukee game. So it was one of the late season call-ups. And they were pointing out this is like player making his major league debut. Like the thing that you dreamed about your whole life. But he struck out and the catcher missed it. Like a pretty clean miss. And the backstop was quite far away. 
he actually looked really annoyed that he had to run and fake the effort. So he jogged uh, this player in his major league debut. He jogged it, and even at that, he was only out by maybe half a step. And the announcers were like, that's crazy. Like, if he even hustled for three or four steps, it would have made the difference there. But the fact that you're making your major, major league debut and the culture's one where you feel like, ah, I'm not running this out. And we were saying, even if you want to get all analytical about it and stuff, we're saying that a lot of teams won't steal much. Like the Blue Jays, they're not into stealing bases because analytics, analytics misses a lot of the value of stealing a base. But they say the out's too valuable to risk, right? And stealing bases, most teams are well above 70% on their attempts. Well, if you think about this, if, if that's your reason for not stealing or attempting to steal, the flip side of that then is if you strike out and you actually are out and you have a chance to take that back, your players, you better be demanding that they t- you know, get their tails down that line as fast as possible. Any chance that first base is empty and they drop that third. But really right now, I would say it's about 50-50 that if they, if they drop the third strike, some players will make an effort. Yep. Some players will make a token effort. Some players head right to the dugout. And some players will kind of stand there till they're tagged. Yeah. And I'm like, if you have a chance, and again, you're only going to get a few here and there, but it's still worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I think when we watch the Jays this year, uh, you're seeing some good hustle, but they're young. And uh, it's likely being programmed into them at, in, the, in the minor leagues. And uh, we'll see what happens in a few years. Uh, when Vladdy Jr. is making the big bucks and uh, he probably has a couple more pounds on him, uh, you know, we'll see if he, uh, he's gonna hustle. if he's going to hustle down to first when he's uh, striking out. Well, and that's the thing, too. You bring up the Jays. And I just want to say that right now because if you go to a Jays game, you know, they have the sliding scale. But for a decent seat on most games, you're paying 100 bucks per seat. You're paying anywhere from you know twenty to forty bucks for parking. They're asking you to pay thirteen dollars for beers, and when I'm paying that kind of money to sit in a ballpark, and I see a player that won't hustle out a play, mm-hmm. like an infield single mm-hmm. or a drop third strike, and they can't be bothered, that drives me nuts. That makes me angry yeah. as a fan. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Even watching them on TV, uh, it it's very frustrating to to watch and. Because you want your team to have that, you know, have that uh, charge behind them and uh, you want them to do well. And it just, it sends a poor message, I believe, to the fans and to the other players, especially if you're a veteran player and you have a lot of rookies around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one thing, uh, maybe uh, why they've kept a guy like Justin Smoke around. He tries to play the game the right way and uh it doesn't really have a bad attitude i guarantee you that's why mike marcus stroman was out the out the door as fast as he was uh they didn't want him around the younger players he's a little bit too about him eh? yeah and and uh so i think keeping him i still think uh freddie galvis would have been a good guy to keep as well but you know that's fine uh so just because they, they they played the game the right way. And, uh, yeah, like I said, going back, the, the most famous or most recent guy is Machado. And, yeah. and what he uh, he did last year during the playoffs is just uh, very nuts. Yeah. yeah, just you have to shake your head at him. And then, of course, he gets stupid amount of money like, in the off season and all right, so. we're going to shift our focus here. Uh, we're going to call this our miscellaneous uh, seasonal spotlights. And basically what this is, is I think a lot of baseball fans, you kind of have, have those players that you follow just for whatever reason. So what we're going to do is to share with some of the players we follow, look at how their season played out this year, and maybe some of our reasons why you know we take interest in them. Some of them will be a bit more obvious than others. So uh, the first one I'm going to kick off here is a guy with some local connections. Uh, from the Clinton area, even went to high school there. Uh, last year was pitching Triple A and pitching well in the Houston Astros organization, and then he ended up uh, having his uh, contract picked up by uh, the Korean League. So he's actually playing. His name is Brock uh, Dixhorn. Uh, 
guys uh, six foot eight, six foot nine, depending on what website you uh, you uh, reference there. Two hundred fifty-seven pounds with uh, the stats I'm looking at here. So yeah, he uh, I think he was four or five years into his minor league career. Was up in AAA pitching well, and uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the team that first signed him, he's, he's played for two teams in Korea, but uh, the team that first signed him previously they had Merrill Kelly who previously sort of followed that path where he was rising as a pitcher through the minors for four or five years. Then he went to Korea for four years and making decent money, like 700000 which is, I think, comparable to what Brock would have been making in North America. But they get the opportunity to be a little more of the main man mm-hmm. and a little bit away from the spotlight. But I know Merrill Kelly, he came back to uh, MLB this year, and he's uh, 10 and 14 with Arizona Diamondbacks. So for Brock Dixworn, I think it's kind of cool that he had uh, the, the idea to maybe try something a little bit different, a different pathway to the major leagues. And uh, good on him. I hope a local Ontario guy does well and comes Absolutely. back to MLB. It's actually, when you, when you talk about going to Korea, another guy that comes to mind, and I don't want to get too far off topic, but it's Eric Thames, former Blue Jay. Oh, yes, yeah. He left. Uh, when he left the majors, the guy was a twig. Uh, went over to Korea for a few years. He came back ripped, just um, built. And uh, he's back with Milwaukee, and he's putting together some Doing well. respectable seasons. And uh, I think maybe he might be a free agent this year, actually. be cool if he maybe came back, yeah. did a return to the Jays. But, uh, yeah, you know, it seems to be a, a good move for some, some players to go over there and get out of the spotlight take the pressure off, and uh, kind of develop over there. Come back, yeah. yeah. And you know what? Like, not everyone can do it. You have to be able to live in a culture with foreign language and very different yep. food and stuff like that. But, you know, good on Brock Dixworn. Uh, South Korea, obviously, for those who know me, is very near and dear to, uh, to my family. And uh, good on Brock Dixworn. Uh, the next one I have on my list, staying with uh, Canadians, uh, actually, this guy is Canadian, but by ways of uh, the Bahamas, uh, came to Ontario from the Bahamas. Uh, a few years ago, we looked at you know best Canadians by position in Major League Baseball, and what we discovered is there's almost been no Canadians play shortstop, just handful of games here and there. And uh, so Adam Hall is the next big hope there. He uh, played single A. Uh, he's in the Baltimore organization. He was a second round draft pick in 2017 by Baltimore. And uh, actually putting together a very good season uh, uh, in Delmarva in the single A for uh, the Orioles organization there. Just looking at the stats, he had 22 doubles, three triples, five home runs, 45 RBIs, hit uh, 298. So, you know, he's made that rookie ball to A, the, you know, low A to high A. So he's making that, that trajectory. So he may actually be our hope to be our best Canadian shortstop of all time. Hmm. And uh, do you want to go to your list or do you want me to do my list first? Or? You go ahead and do your list. And sure. Then so I do have, I have five people total and the first three have something in common and then the last three have something in common. Next up, uh, Dalton Pompey. I think uh, some people are already done with him. They're already past it. But I kind of feel that if you got in the right, situation he could be a decent i'm not saying he's going to be a star but he could be i think a solid fourth uh outfielder for a team he's obviously been snake bitten with injuries he was off most of the year and then when he's in buffalo he just played a handful of games there i think he had 27 at bats and then he fouled one off of his foot and it's heartbreaking to see what has happened with dalton pompey i want to say about 2014 he started the uh the season with the with the team Things were looking promising, and again, he just seems to have uh, gone into a tailspin. I do think uh, being under my, under the microscope of being a Toronto kid, playing for the Jays, the whole uh, you know entire country watching you thing is maybe a lot for to put on a young guy. And you know what? Maybe a uh, a team like Miami or San Diego just Get away from uh, this situation. It might be a, 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 a good thing for him, just a change of scenery and uh, being in a different organization. 
And, uh, yeah, and it, people have heard me talk about, obviously, I feel speed needs to be more of an emphasis in the game. And he has 167 steals in the minors. So he does add that element of speed. So I, I, I just hope he does land on his feet. He hangs it out. He sticks it out and, and bubbles up. As you say, you'll probably have to be in another organization for it. But yeah, I, I, hope will, he does. I will always remember Dalton Pompey because uh, he was on third base when Josh Donaldson was up to bat against Kansas City in game, was that game six? And uh, he was put in as a pinch runner, and he was, if Josh had just squeaked one out of the infield, it would have been a totally different story. But instead, there, eh? Kansas went on to win the ALCS and eventually the World Series. So. World Series, yeah. So Dalton Pompey's on the injured reserve, and my next uh, player here, Jordan Hicks. Uh, we talked about him last year on the show, and if you haven't heard about him, you got to get on, watch some clips of this. So Jordan Hicks, he's the fastest throwing, hardest throwing player in baseball right now. He, uh, this year, even though he's actually been on the injured reserve for a huge amount of time, he's having Tommy John's surgery. Uh, 21 fastest pitches thrown in Major League Baseball were all his this season. And this guy, um, I think there's only two players to ever hit 105 in a major league game, and he's done it. He's the only one to do it more than once. Uh, Araldus Chapman is the other one, uh, but he's done it. I can't, I know at last count, there was at least three times he had done it. He had done it three times in a single game, hitting 105, and he's also hit 104 quite a few times. Uh, his sinker, his sinker averages 101 miles an hour. That's his fastest pitch. His fastball, slightly slower, but still averages more than 100 miles an hour. That is mind-boggling to me. His sinker averages more than 100 miles an hour. That's incredible. So you can see, uh, for those of you watching on TV, we obviously have clips. But uh, yeah, so in that whole range there, I think since 2008, they've tracked uh, fastball velocity. And Araldus Chapman has averaged more than 100 miles an hour on his fastball several times. Uh, Mauricio Cabrera has done it for Atlanta once, and then Jordan Hicks uh, last year averaged more than 100 miles an hour in his fastball too. So yeah, worth watching. I hope after the Tommy John, he's probably going to lose a little velocity. Um, needs to find the strike zone because sometimes he's well outside of it. But very fun to watch just because of that intense heat. And that brings me around to my last spotlight here. And this one's another... Uh, polarizing figure. Some people love him, some people hate him, but I, I find it interesting to watch, and that's Tim Tebow, uh, who we know started out as a star American NCAA quarterback, had a bit of a run in the NFL, some nice moments, but, you know, some failures, and then decided to commit to baseball and made it all the way to AAA this year, and he's been laid out with injuries again. Uh, I have to say this, he probably did better last year in double-A than people expected, but then really, really, really struggled at triple-A there, batting average of 163, huge amount of strikeouts. Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on Tim Tebow? All I have to say to that is good. <laughs> I can't stand the guy. I've never liked him. Uh, I think this is just a gimmick uh by the Mets that put on by the Mets that really probably has lasted about two more years than what it really should have. And uh I mean he, I think I, I read somewhere where he's about thirty three or so somewhere in there now. Uh age wise? Yeah. Uh thirty one. Thirty one? Yeah. So he's probably not going to make the majors at this point. I I can't imagine he would break through. Uh, especially if he's struggling as much as he is at AAA. So just, uh, I just found him, always found him to be kind of, our politics just don't align, I guess I is what I'm going to, is what I, I'll, I'll get to. Is the vibe, I'll, I'll, yeah. yeah. And uh, so I, I actually always thought it was strange that uh, he really didn't get the shot that he did in football because that one year with the Broncos wasn't that bad, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah, like, actually, it was respectable. Yeah, it surprised me how well he did, yeah. And then nobody really wanted to touch him after that. It was, it was quite strange. A lot of them don't 
in, in NFL football, they kind of have rigid mindsets. Yep. And they often have very, very good mobile quarterbacks yep. that they are challenged with what to do with that. Moving the pocket apparently is the same as splitting the atom when it comes to American football coaches. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so having said that, so my thought, we're going to look at our Twitter poll here. The question was, do you think Tim Tebow will ever make the major leagues? I don't think he'll ever get established. As you say, he's 31. I don't think he's ever going to make a big dent as a major leaguer. I think what would happen is if he ever gets even halfway close in AAA, some team will probably call him up and give him a shot in the major leagues just because you've got to pack the seats and have a lot of people yeah, tuning in. Some, some people tuning in, you know, maybe a Miami. Exactly. Who yeah. Average about five thousand people. It'll be a re- it'll be a bump for a while because he does even in the minors he was filling stadiums for a while there yeah. as a curiosity piece. Again, I don't think he'll be you know make a dent as a real established player, but he's certainly going to have to get above one hundred sixty three as a batting average in AAA. But if he can hit above the Mendoza line, be he's decent defensively. Yeah. If if he can do that, I think someone will call him up and probably be like a forty man roster kind of deal and you know a team that's not making the playoffs what do we have to lose let's get our fans interested in this yep and uh he'll have so i I think if he can get it together enough i think he will play a few major league games but i don't think he'll be a real major leaguer i think i was the first on no (laughs) at the twitter poll it was a race there yeah Yeah. and someone gave us the uh the tim who uh, (laughs) that, that got some so who uh who do you have there so i picked three people that i follow on a regular basis oh, three so, players so, sorry to interrupt you I, sh- I, I forgot for our podcast followers oh right you know what i can say if you want to see the the poll there and how it turned out uh most people sorry most people think he's not major, making it to major most of them agree with us um you can go to our uh baseball talk tv is our uh, twitter account you can check it out for yourself Sorry, go ahead. I, I usually follow, there's three uh, players that I've followed this season anyways that uh, they're all Canadian. And as a Canadian, you just, you root for those guys to make it big in the majors. I'm of the age, in 92, 93, you know, people were saying, this is going to be great for the youth of uh, Canadian baseball and the growth of Canadian baseball as uh, you know, the, the World Series championships. And even 94, the Expos were great. Just everything went in the toilet at the end of the season, near the end of the season. So I follow uh, Josh Naylor, who is a top prospect in the San Diego Padres organization. He's batting two fifty nine. He's got seven home runs, 29 RBIs. Uh, he made his debut against the Jays in May. And he's uh, from Mississauga. Sorry, Scarborough. He's from Scarborough. And uh, his brother Noah is in the Cleveland organization. And uh, really looking to be a promising, solid major league player. And, uh, you know, it's just exciting to see these guys uh, growing up in Canada, coming through, uh, you know, Baseball Canada and, you know, the junior teams and all that and working their way up. And uh, it's great to see. Good to see. Uh, in that clip there, I noticed they're playing San Diego. So yep. I think I know where you're going with your next one. Yep. Another guy, uh, Cal Quantrill, also playing for San Diego. The name is familiar because his dad, Paul, played for the pitched for the Jays uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Also pitched for the Yankees and the Dodgers. From Port Hope, Ontario, uh, I have dreams of Cal in a Blue Jay uniform at some point down the road. Whether that happens, I don't know. But right now he's six and seven with a five point one two ERA, eighty strikeouts. Uh, he made his MLB debut against Toronto in May as well. So uh, very promising young pitcher. He's also, uh, as I was mentioning off air, kind of near and dear to my heart because he went to a boarding school at uh, Trinity College School in, in Port Hope. I went to a boarding school as well, and I uh, used to go there and play hockey and stuff like that. So, so it was just kind of cool to see a guy uh, doing so well. From, from the hood. 
Yeah. From the from the private school hood. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's uh I wouldn't call it a hood. Well, Anox- actually where I went there. where I went it was pretty rough. Yeah. But uh but uh the uh yeah, it's it's just cool to see a guy uh make his way up. He he uh took the college route. Someone who's breathed the same air as you have at yeah, some point. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So and uh to see, you know, Another son of a major leaguer. I know there's a lot right now, especially in the Jays organization, but just cool to see. Uh, and finally, the last guy, just a little obvious, but I'm just a huge fan of this guy. It's Joey Votto. Oh, yeah. I just, I love this guy. Hard uh, not to like Joey. Yeah. Uh, he's a six-time All-Star. He's an NL MVP in 2010. The NL Hank Aaron Award. Uh, two-time Lou Marsh. Award winner, seven-time Tip O'Neill Award winner, which is for the best Canadian in baseball. Batting average, career batting average is three hundred seven. He has a thousand eight hundred and fifty hits, two hundred eighty-three home runs, and nine hundred and forty RBIs. And uh, he's just an interesting guy. He uh, nice guy. I, I do have to interject on this one because I know as of last year when we were looking at his stats statistically extremely similar to another Canadian, Larry Walker. Yes. And yes, I'm going to go there yet again. Larry Walker needs to be in the Hall of Fame. Absolutely. And People if, are pretty sure Joey Votto's going in is a lock. Yes. Larry Walker, parallel numbers. If, it's driving me insane if, he's not in the Hall of Fame. Larry Walker, I think this is his last year of eligibility. Yeah. And if he doesn't get in, it's a crying shame. Uh, I do believe he will get in in the players category. Eventually. Eventually. Uh, but I also believe Joey Votto will follow him very closely. Yeah. And he's uh, just a great guy to watch and a great interview. When the Humboldt Broncos tragedy happened, he wore a Broncos T-shirt. I think he still wears it at times for interviews. Uh, and he's fun to watch with the interac- interaction with the plant or uh, fans. Uh, there was one guy who said, hey, I remember – when he used to be good, and he said, hey, I remember when he used to be thin. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's just uh, he's a fun player to watch, and uh, at one time he just said, you know what, I'm not going to hit home runs anymore, and I'm just I'm going to get on base. And uh, people kind of panned him for it, but it worked out for him. So uh, lots of fun. Highly productive player there. Absolutely. Um, all right, so that brings us around to our last minute. So we do want to take a moment here to say a big congratulations to uh, Listable Legionnaires who uh, were on t- or just over a week ago won an Ontario championship. So I know that's an organization we've had Chris Kurz on here before uh, that have a lot of volunteers, a lot of uh, positive energy going around that team. So congratulations to the Listable Legionnaires. Do you have anything to throw in there on that one, Adam? Or? It's, yeah, it, it's great to see. I there is a it's really uh, the community has really gotten behind the the team over there. And uh, just a quick tidbit: I work. I was doing some field work recently, and I happened to wander out into their field uh, just as I was working. And what a great atmosphere! Just to sit on a real base baseball diamond, not a softball diamond, but real baseball diamond. And and should add there that this uh, this carrier Whiteman they uh, broadcast several of their games the last couple of years and yep. probably a good chance they're going to be uh, broadcasting some of their games next year. So you can look forward to that on Whiteman TV. So there we go. We had a great chat with Rob Fay from the Vancouver Canadians. And next week we're back for our wrap-up episode of Baseball Talk for the season. So uh, we'll see you there on Baseball Talk next week. <laughs>